What's up? So the next episode of the podcast is with Jack Kenzel. Jack is an uber athlete. He's setting the fastest known time or FKT on peaks and objectives all over the world. He set the FKT on Denali, Rainier, Shasta, the Bob Graham, a big race in the UK, the Presidential Traverse, a big objective in the Northeast. He is all over the map, smashing records, um, total stud. <laughs> he uh, is an ex-Navy SEAL, and we talk about his training. We talk about what goes into the SEALs. It's it's just totally wild. Um, the whole SEALs training experience kind of blew my mind. We talk about boulder culture and soloing accidents. We talk about um, his solo traverse across Haiti on a bike and getting robbed, his bikepacking trip across Tajikistan, the Tamir Highway, thousands of kilometers of bikepacking through the East Ends. Um, most of all, we just kind of get into his mind, his ideology, and what makes him tick. So I hope you enjoy, and I'll jump right in. What sequence of events led you to go to the East Ends at 17 and ride your bike for a few thousand kilometers? Yeah, yeah. So so what happened was, is um, growing up, my, my dad was a pilot for Delta Airlines. And so I was lucky to travel pretty cheaply with that. And so, and he was, you know, he was in the Marine Corps for a while and he like really, you know, believed in, in traveling and stuff. So, so he did take me on a lot of trips growing up and uh, we went to India a handful of times for like three weeks each. And uh, we went to Ghana uh, for several weeks. And then when I graduated high school, I like really, I wanted to take some longer trip that summer. And so I just like went on this, there's a cycling forum, like a bikepacking forum. Like, I don't even know if people even use it anymore called crazy guy on a bike. And it's just like very basic text. And uh, I found a guy on the forum on there that was just open to have people joining him. And he was a Canadian guy, Eric Alari, and he was going from uh, Shanghai to Istanbul. And he was in, he was in Almaty. He was in Southern Kazakhstan at the time. And we exchanged like three messages. And he's like, yeah, sure. You know, you can come meet me in Bishkek. So just this totally random guy. You've never met him. You, yeah, yeah. You just interacting through a forum board. Yeah, yeah. You're pretty sure this isn't like a Nigerian print scheme or some <laughs> sort of yeah. weird, yeah, weird, yeah, yeah. like elaborate long con. Yeah, that you're getting swooped into. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and you just say, what the hell? Let's let's just do it. Let's meet up and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and we will literally like. I wish I could. I I don't know if I can go back and look at our messages, but. It was, it was, I was like, Hey, could I come join you? Like my partner bailed and I was going to do this. And he was like, yeah, sounds good. I'll be in Bishkek, you know, next week. And then that was, you know, and then the next, <laughs> didn't talk to him on the phone or anything. Like that was it. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, I, I flew into Bishkek and he was, you know, waiting for me at the airport. I mean, I almost think it's not, it's almost crazier what he did. Cause I'm imagining being him now. Cause I'm about his age. Like I couldn't imagine some like random 17 year old. I'd be like, hell no. Like you're not, you're not doing this. Yeah. Imagine <laughs> you're, you're training, you're going to do, you know, your next big high altitude FKT or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And, and some kid reaches out to you and is like, Hey man, I really want to join. Um, yeah. my partner bailed on me, but, uh, but can I just, you know, tag along here? Yeah. <laughs> you'd be yeah. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you'd be like, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, okay. So that, is it just wanderlust? Have you had wanderlust, um, your whole life? I mean, you, there's some other things you mentioned in your text. You soloed across Haiti, mm -mm. walking, bike, the bike. So I did this trip. It was, uh, May to July, end of July, 2013. So almost 10 years ago. Yeah. But so, I wish I got to show you a photo um, of what I looked like. I have, I have a bunch of photos. I look like I hadn't gone through puberty at that point. I looked like 11 or 12 years old. Like it was unbelievable how like young I looked. So you look like a middle schooler. And, look like a middle schooler. And you're doing all these epic uh, transverses on, yeah, yeah, yeah. on bikes yeah. and your dad's involved. So with, with the Haiti thing, so what he was actually going to do was he was going to, it was going to be a two week thing. Uh -huh. I was going to do a week by myself and then he was going to join me for the second week. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it was just, it was just like out of control, like from the start, like I had, I had this like altercation where I was trying to just get gasoline for like my, uh, my MSR, like dragonfly, like multi-fuel stove. And somebody became, I asked somebody and then she said, Oh, I'm going to get my brother. And then like, the brother comes out and it's like this guy and he's like six, five, like zero fat. And he was wearing a trench coat and it was open. He was completely naked under it. And, uh, he like spoke a little bit of English 
and we get a huge argument whether I need propane or gasoline. And so then like all of a sudden, like 200 people came out and then like they convened. I don't know what it was like, you know, I don't know, some sort of village leadership to come out and like hear both sides of it. And they decided because he helped me, you know, even though I didn't want the help that I had to pay him. And I was like, absolutely not. And so this was like this lasted for like three hours before I got the bottle back. You're on your own. On my own. And then after that, like I biked out of town and there was somebody had been hit by a car and then subsequently run over by the next 400 vehicles. And it was just like a streak of like, oh my God, across the road. <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ. So you mentioned to me separately that at some point in that transverse of Haiti, you got robbed. You, yeah, yeah. What happened? I remember the first thing that happened to me that was kind of hostile uh, is I was biking by these kids and uh, somebody like warned me like, oh, the road up ahead is dangerous. And like I had, you know, when we were in Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, like the Kyrgyz, like all they would tell us was we were going to be beheaded in Tajikistan. That's what everybody told us. And then like we got to Tajikistan, the people were like incredibly friendly. Like that was just not the case. And <laughs> you're like, like, so we just went forward anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, then it was fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, Anyway, go on. So I was just used to ignoring people. And so that was kind of the strategy I did here, which was, which was not the right idea. And, uh, I came to this one spot through this like very remote stretch of jungle on the coast. And, um, this motorcycle stops, you know, and he stops next to me and there's like three guys on the motorcycle. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, three other motorbikes picked, pulled up. And like all these guys like kind of got off and like kind of standing around me and, uh, you know, we're kind of like going back and forth and everything. And then they took my wallet and they pulled all the cash out of it and they gave me it back with the credit cards. Uh, they took like my inreach. They're like, just so you can like survive here. Well, it was kind of funny. It was like, I was, I was surprised they gave me my passport back, like knowing how much they could probably sell that for. Took the camera and, uh, I was like pleading with them to like give me the SD cards out of the camera. And they were like, you know, laughing and like mocking me, which like really fucking pissed me off. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, they took all this stuff and then, and then they, they left. And so then I was like, uh, fuck, you know, now what do I do? And so I bike to the next town, which was only like a half a mile away. And, um, as I'm biking up the hill, all of a sudden, all this traffic comes by me. And I realized that they had people holding the traffic in the next town. It's quite organized. It was quite organized. And, um, and so I get to the next town and there was a, there was actually like a cockfighting tournament going on. And there were like hundreds of people in this tiny like village. And um, I went and talked to this pastor and this pastor's like, oh yeah, he's like, he's like, nobody crosses that gap because like you're going to get robbed if you cross that gap. And so I was like, oh, it's fuck. just a known, ban- it's just like a known bandito thing. zone. Yeah. 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 So like yeah. the trucks, I guess would go across it, but that would be like Haitian Butch Cassidy lives in that Valley and no exactly. one goes there. And yeah, Haitian, Haitian Butch Cassidy, but no way it was, uh, it was brutal. And then yeah, the next morning it was actually pretty crazy. So like they did like a collection in the village. Like you're like, you know, fucking like, you know, poorest people in the world. And they did like a collection in the village to like pay for my bus ticket. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the whole village. I don't know, actually, like, yeah, I, I, I wonder how much. Sympathize with your plight. Sympathize with my plight. I mean, it probably was, you know, I, it couldn't have been, you know, more than a dollar, I imagine. But um, yeah, no, they, they collected this money. And, you know, those people have like zero, you know, have no money. Because um, otherwise you were completely marooned. I was completely marooned. So. I, uh, at that point, the next, yeah, they put me on this. I mean, it was probably one of the craziest experiences I ever had traveling, but they put me on this, uh, this bus that was just, it was just unbelievable. Like it was like a lifted truck, uh, like a, I don't even know how to describe it, but it was like a big lifted, like cargo truck where they had put, I think basically like a shipping container on the back of it and then just cut holes in it and then just like welded benches in there and they packed they packed an unbelievable number of people in there. And I had, I was, I was literally like my, I was like supported by two people. Like I was sitting on top of people practically and I was slammed against the front of like the seating area, right against the engine. And like the wall was like so hot, like radiating these heat. And like somebody put a baby, like I had a baby in my lap for like six hours and we stopped. I mean, it was probably more than that. We stopped one time I remember, and it was to go to the bathroom and we literally just stopped at this mountain pass. And it was like, cliffs on either side and people just like got out and were just like shitting and pissing like all over the road like in full view of each other like everyone was like you know just like right in the middle of the road like it was just that was like kind of crazy and then we got to port-au-prince and um you know port-au-prince is you know extremely dangerous and uh like there are whole areas of the city where like you know you know nobody you know i don't want to say like 
like no Westerners go, like just local Haitians basically there. And, you know, uh, I, I got, we were there and like, it was like, it was unbelievable outside. Like I was looking outside and I was like, oh my God, like I can't imagine, you know, who would be getting off here. Like it was so horrifying. And, uh, all of a sudden I look out the window and like somebody's lowering my bicycle off the roof and throwing all my bags off the roof and like a huge crowd of people forms and like some guy run, runs out of the crowd and he just like rips the cycling computer off my handlebars and I'm just like standing there and he just like takes off running down the street. <laughs> my God. Like, I don't know what the hell he was going to do with that. And then finally, fortunately, like somebody, one, a motorcycle taxi driver showed up who spoke English and, uh, I'm trying to even remember what happened. I had a phone number for someone at the guest house and they called it and they sent somebody down there in like a pickup to like pick me up. But it was like, that was like a horrible experience. That's terrifying. So you, so you went to Yale sometime mm -hmm. around this time period. Yeah. So it was like after I came back from Deshambe, I started school, you know, a month and a half later. Yeah. That's pretty cool getting into Yale. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, not, a, it's, not, <laughs> it's yeah. not an easy place to get into. Well, I mean, I think so. So yeah. part of it is, I think that that needs to be said is like everybody kind of fills like a, a, some sort of niche at the school. Yeah. And so like I was probably compared, I imagine, against all of the ROTC applicants, you know. Where ROTC is ROTC. It's the voluntary um, reserves program for. Yeah. So, so, so the, the military will pay for someone's uh, college and then afterwards there's so you obligated service. You applied military. to ROTC prior to applying yeah. to college? Mm -hmm. That was like fall of my senior year of high school. Yeah, yeah. And what yeah. compelled you to <clears throat> to go into ROTC? I mean, where what was the origin of young Jack saying, <laughs> I want to go into the military? I mean, generally, I believe in like the overall guiding, you know, central mission of like the US government. Like there's obviously a lot of like problems that have happened along the way. But I think generally it's like, you know, a force for good. So that was probably a fundamental motivation. And then part of it also was like this idea of travel and everything. Um, I think another part of it certainly, and this, this, I only, this, it took me a long time to conclude. I think like, as I said before, like going through puberty when I was like 20, I think, or like 19, 20, I think like going into the military was like a very, especially going to the SEAL teams was like a very, like, it's like the most like masculine thing you can almost do. And I think for me, that was like very attractive. So from the very beginning, you're, I want to be a SEAL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was, which was, <laughs> I mean, which was kind of funny because like when I first, like I'm like, you know, six, one, six, two and like 180 right now, probably a little bit heavier, like 185. And like when I started college, like I was like, maybe like, you know, I was like five, 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 six and like, you know, but probably you know, maybe five, four and then like a hundred and you know, 20, 130 pounds, totally maybe. scrawny. Yeah. Yeah. Very tiny. And so, so it was, it was, you just went I, through puberty very late. Is that? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Which, which honestly like was something I kind of hated, you know, growing up obviously, but, um, I think it's like kind of been a gift because like athletes that go through puberty later peak later. And like, generally they have like a longer peak. Huh. Um, and like, I think like your bot, like you're the age of your body. Maybe it's just a little bit younger relative to your, you know, actual biological age. Huh. Um, so, so hormones affect the longevity of your sort of muscular performance. I think, I think so. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense. I mean, hormones are going to change the whole physiology of everything. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, which was kind of funny, like being a, you know, freshman in college and being that tiny and like, you know, looking again, looking like I was 10 years old and being like, oh yeah, you know, um, I'd like to be a Navy SEAL. Did you feel like you had a chip on your shoulder through training? Compared to others. I did feel like that amongst many guys, that that was kind of like a commonality that like guys did have a chip or like something to prove or some sort of like lingering insecurity. And I think that could be said about successful people, you know, across, you know, industry or politics or, you know, sports, whatever, you know, anything else. So I think that's, that was a, that was a common factor. I mean, that certainly isn't, not everyone identified with that, but I did feel like there were, there were, you know, quite a few guys that. There's an expression that, uh psychologists sometimes use that um talent needs trauma yeah yeah quite possibly yeah <laughs> like it's just it's just it's just wild uh how many successful people like when you really dig into it it's like you know doesn't really come always from like the healthiest place so you observe that in the seals so 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 timeline here so you, yeah, yeah at what point in college or after college do you do you begin the selection process from rotc to seals so when you're in ROTC, in Navy ROTC, basically your choices are 
uh, you know, you can go on a ship, you can fly, you can be in a submarine, you can do explosives handling EOD, or you can become a SEAL are basically the only five choices that you have. And so the spring, I believe, of my junior year, I did like a written application, very similar to a college application, and then like a physical test. You know, it was like 500 meter swim, uh, max push-ups in two minutes, max sit-ups in two minutes, max pull-ups in two minutes, and then a mile and a half run. Uh, and all of that, you know, that package goes and then they select, you know, however many, you know, candidates to then go that summer to Coronado. Is it buds at that point? Or so is it... I, the official term is uh, SOAS. So it's like SEAL SOAS. Officer Assessment and Selection. What is buds, by the way? Let's, yeah, so let's explain what buds is. Buds is like the classic, you know, SEAL training where it's like a lot of, you know, rolling around in the sand and like getting really cold in the water and like not sleeping. And so, people fail out or have to keep repeating it. It's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Safe to say that that six month buds is, is, I mean, it is like one of, it is like one of the worst things you can, I mean, I certainly there are worse things you can do, but as far as things you can, you can choose to do and get paid for, like, I don't really know what would be more unpleasant than that. Yeah. I've heard redlining that you, or maybe I don't have the right term. Somebody uh -huh. told me this, but that part of what happens is, uh, is a sort of forced drowning. There's, there's a bunch of stuff that's kind of whack. Like, you know, when we did, uh, we did an, I remember we did a knot tying drill where you had to go to the bottom of a pool and tie knots. And at that point, there were a lot of kids in the class. There were probably, you know, I don't know, north of 150 people in the class. And over the course of that, probably five people passed out. And obviously, if you, if you surface when you're not supposed to, like that's you're quitting. Um, so your only option, if you can't, you know, handle it, is just a blackout. And then, yeah, there is um, some scuba testing you do in the pool. And that was the hardest thing that probably I've ever done, which was the, uh, final seal like open circuit scuba test which is i mean truly probably the, almost certainly the most unpleasant 20 minutes of my entire life why is um, that what what is it basically they put you at the bottom of the pool and the test i believe lasts for a minimum of 20 minutes uh you get four tries to do it and the first thing that happens is basically the instructors repeatedly simulate what they say they're simulating as being hit by a wave and so the first thing that happens in the test, you're crawling on the bottom, they rip your mask off. And then it's like, oh, wow. So they, they just start oh, it's, fucking it, with you. It's like horrific. Yeah. It's like my friend had like his front teeth chipped in from getting his face like smacked against the bottom of the pool. But it's like, it's like one, the initial surf hit that they give you is like, I mean, I, I would say it's probably reasonable to assume that initial surf hit is at least 90 seconds where like your, your air is interrupted and they are taking you in like flipping you on the bottom of the pool. They're like messing your straps up. They're like, you know, and they're like, you know, be multiple instructors just tagging down and just like messing with you like that. And, you know, you can't breathe. You're just being like tumbled around and then they'll stop. And then you'll have to go through this like very precise procedure to like get your airflow back. Redial your dress the straps. And at some point in that, they will interrupt it again. You'll get like half a breath and then they'll like do it again. And um, I just remember 20 minutes of like, yeah, you're about to pass out the entire time. I'm like vomiting continuously from like aspirating and swallowing water. Well, you're vomiting inside of this tank uh, water. Yeah. You know, no, no, no. Do you no, take the, off the, the mask? No, the regulator's been, the regulator, the first thing that happens every time they surf at you is they rip the regulator out of your mouth. So you would just be vomiting. I just into the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do people yeah. actually, um, I mean, I would assume that some people take on water and, and effectively drown and then are um, resuscitated. Yeah, so there was an individual who died um, God, I can't remember his last first name. His last name was Lovelace, but he died in April of 2016. He died and he died from aspirating water during a similar evolution, which may be what you're thinking of, which they kind of, they kind of rolled it back a bit. Um, basically what they would do is everybody would line up in the pool in a very specific order, like in rows and columns in a very specific order. And then they would tell you, like, you know, they would reorient and be like, okay, like, you know, boat crew one now has to be to the west and boat crew two to the east. And everyone has to, like, switch places in the pool. Okay. And sounds really easy, but the instructors would be, like, around the edges, like, pushing everybody into the center. And so that is how somebody, you know, that's how Lovelace drowned. And so then after that, that evolution was was calmed down a bit. And I, I don't think anybody who has died as a result of a water evolution since then, I mean, people would pass out. They do have like tons of medics on the pool deck. 
they have like people there's the there's an observation window they can look into the pool from below uh so it is like very controlled but because the control and this is kind of a commonality throughout buds now because the control level of control is so great and the medical intervention is so great they can take you like right to that line where like you know they put you in the water until right before you're going to be like hypothermic to a point where they can't they have to interrupt training to recover you you know essentially so they can you know, back in, back in the 70s, it was like, all right, yeah, leave them in the water for like 10 minutes. That's good enough. But now it's like, okay, we can take you. We're going to have you swallow a temperature sensor and take you like right to the line. And then they can like, you know, roll it back a bit. So it is it is controlled, but um, yeah, it's just very, I mean, it probably one of the most, like probably the most formative 20 minutes of my entire life because I think about that, you know, like anytime I'll be like messing with gear or anything else or like, uh, I always think about like in my head, like, you know, reaching behind my head and like grabbing those valves. Like that's, that's something I'll like never forget for, for better or worse. Um, I do but. think it, ha- it helps. I've thought not that I've done anything like what you are describing right now, but having had experiences that kind of blew my mind when I was younger in terms of how, how epic and intense it was. And then in later years, you know, being on some mountain, doing something and being like, I know I can do this because I did because I did that other thing. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. No. And, and that sort of mental psychological trick being really powerful yeah. in those moments. I mean, so you're up on Denali, you know, you're racing, you're literally running, and you're oxygen deprived. I mean, there's no other yeah, way yeah. to. I mean, going from the airstrip at seven thousand feet up to the summit at twenty thousand something feet, there's just no way to go that high that quickly without serious um impact in in oxygen to your body to your brain yeah 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 how similar are those experiences uh, i think the there were there were things in the seal teams that were very scary for me um i mean certainly i was never in combat so all of my scary experiences came from training but i would say like you know when i was skiing down the autobahn and i was terrified i mean yeah probably some of the arousal control that we learned you know during the scuba stuff you know, probably helped. Arousal control, meaning calming the central nervous system. They taught us like a number of, a number of strategies for like before Bud started, they would teach us strategies for like mental toughness or like, you know, uh, arousal control. So like what they taught us was like, you know, breathing techniques. Uh, they would teach us like box breathing, which I think is like four seconds in, four seconds hold, four seconds exhale, and then maybe four seconds at the bottom. If you control breathing. Yeah. Which goes back centuries, millennia. I mean, yeah, yeah. all the... All the great traditions. Yeah, I mean, breathing, p- people know now, is is the sort of connection between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And that's the only physical mechanism we have that starts controlling both. I hope mm. I'm describing that correctly. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But people smarter than me have dug into all this. But yeah, if you focus on breathing, you can control your nervous system. It's a really interesting trick, the four-second trick. Four seconds up, four seconds hold, four seconds out four seconds empty. When I used to free dive, uh, what the breathing used to be that we do for that, uh, I believe was, it was two seconds in, two second hold, a 10 second exhale, and then two seconds at the bottom. I mean, it's just like that. You have to be very calm to be able to exhale for 10 seconds like that. Um, do you have really big lungs? Yeah. I don't know. I'd be curious. I have a, I have a sneaking suspicion. I, I've spent time with Carl Egloff, by the way, who okay, um, okay. previously yeah, yeah. held the record. I lived with yeah. him for like two weeks in Ecuador. No way. Um, and shot some film with him. And oh, right um, on. we measured his VO2 max in Quito. And oh, wow. uh, Carl Egloff, just for the podcast, is, is another um, high altitude mountain runner, sky runner that is uh, <laughs> breaking records on the world's tallest peaks. Um, seven summits, um, holds, holds some of the seven summit records currently. Um, but his VO2 max was, I believe the same or just 1% lower or less as, uh, Lance Armstrong's, but at, uh, the elevation of Quito, his lungs are no, taking that'd be in that'd be insane. Yeah, that'd a be... multiple of the amount of oxygen that a standard person's lungs are taking in for each breath. Yeah. You know, two X, three X, the amount of air for each breath too. yeah what correlates to like your your the body's like ability to like uptake the oxygen that you inhale it's like how much how much oxygen is getting from the air into your into your bloodstream like it might be surface area of the lungs even or right. i mean i don't know what could, would kind of affect that from like a structural perspective but 
No, that's crazy. Yeah, Carl has the uh, currently still has the ascent record on Denali, and he has the round trip record without without skis running. So, can you imagine doing the whole thing without skis? What what was his ascent record versus Killian's yeah. versus yours? I think Carl got to the top in seven thirty, maybe from the airstrip, and then I got there, I believe, in seven forty, and then Killian got there. I think it was like 9.48. It was, it was much slower. Yeah, but most people yeah. go to Denali, and if they're lucky, they're doing it in two weeks. And if the weather's bad, maybe they're doing it in three weeks. But yeah, doing it in seven, eight, nine hours is... It, it doesn't actually make sense to me. I know it, it just doesn't actually make sense to me to be on. It's so crazy. And maybe that's by virtue of doing these mountains in a completely different style. It's yes, really hard exactly, to imagine. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. But it... It just seems insane. Yeah. It, it seems way beyond um, what's physically even possible. <laughs> I mean, I can, well, so just to circle back, like, so uh, at least above 14,000 feet, I had the best weather. I think of all three of us. I think Killian had the worst weather uh, above 14,000 feet, but is there's potential that Killian had better conditions below 14. Um, Carl did it in a slightly different style where he had, uh, gear and food stashed at 14 where Killian and I only took water, you know, on the mountain. Um, so a, a little bit, a little bit different, but yeah, no, I think Denali, but you guys both had skis. I mean, that's, and we both had, and we both had skis. That's yeah, like yeah, yeah. a huge difference. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah, yeah. No big difference. And so, yeah. So uh, the difference kind of between, uh, Killian and I, in addition to the ascent time. So then Killian went down about 25 minutes faster than me. And so I think Killian just maybe had more fresh snow on the route, especially up high. Like me up high was insanely firm. And like, I did not feel safe going any faster really than I did. So I was about 24. You were worried slower, about falling slower than Killian. Yeah. I was worried about falling. Very concerned. <laughs> Skiing the Autobahn, I thought was quite, was quite frightening. And that's probably where I had the highest chance of being, you know, maimed or killed because, you know, if you fall there, it's, it's a, a giant, uh, it's a multi thousand foot kind of sloping, uh, steep hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of old pickets. Yes, which made it kind of scary to ski because yeah. there's pickets everywhere. So what's, I mean, these these solo bikepacking trips when you're young, you're, you're really just kind of throwing yourself into these immersive experiences, these hard physical experiences. You seem insanely driven towards them. Now these FKTs on big mountains. Um, where's that coming from? Like what, <laughs> like most people don't want to suffer that much. You know? Yeah. 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 I will say to the suffering front, like clearly it's not about the suffering because I don't plan on ever going fucking back to Denali. If I didn't get the Denali record, I would not have gone back. Like there's, there's no, there's no way. Like, I mean, it was just, it was just, yeah. I mean, whatever, like I am not when I, you know, go and yeah, like some, there is some degree of suffering, like through training, like where you're just doing high volume, like, you know, there is some suffering there. But like when I go out and like when I would like race Rainier, I mean, there were parts of it that were actually quite fun. Like those, I just raced, like re-raced my old record on the presidential traverse in New Hampshire. And like, that was like the most fun I've had in a long time. Like it was, it was like a lot, a lot of fun racing that. But there are other times it is uh, a lot of suffering. Certainly the Denali experience was the actual race day was very minimal suffering. It was all, it was just, you know, everything leading up to that, you know, was just uh, more unpleasant than I would have, I would have personally liked. Um, what, like what? Oh, just like, uh, so, I mean, we had a problem, you know, so my partner, he got like, uh, very altitude sick, like borderline haste. So it was like dealing with that situation was just stressful. Uh, this year had like the worst summit percentage ever on, or, you know, the last, I don't know what, 30 years or something. I don't know. I think like 32% of people summited or something. So this the, is the year that you set the FKT. Yeah, that was this year. Yeah. You yeah. had the lowest percentage of summits. Yes. Yeah. So the weather was just, weather was awful. But in some ways, like the percentage of summits was so low because it was getting so much snow. And so uh, at least the lower glacier was like extremely direct because it was so filled in. Uh, and one of the advantages of doing big mountains in the style that you're doing it is you kind of don't have to play the same weather game. You definitely don't have to play the same weather oh, game. Oh, yeah. You can have a much narrower window. Yeah. You can move fast. So your your rules are different. Yeah. But you're also taking a lot more risk 
in different yeah. ways. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. I mean, how do you think about the ri- what scares you when you're doing this? Yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of like, you know, idiot, like very basic, like lizard brain and like exposure scares me. And then like, you know, like that's <laughs> going over, like, you know, you know, kind of like going solo, like on a, you know, on a glacier. It's like, oh, well, like, you know, it's not as scary as like looking over a giant cliff. So, you know, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, that's kind of like just in my mind, like, you know, the fear that I like can't really, you know, like, cause I, sometimes I feel like if I'm, if I'm soloing like low fifth class, sometimes if I get, you know, there are some people that I think are too cavalier, like on that type of terrain. And then I think in my case, sometimes a little too over gripped where it starts to affect your decision-making and in bad ways. Uh, yeah. Okay. You were mentioning, um, some people are overly cavalier on fifth class. I can't remember if you wrote an op-ed or if it was an Instagram story or so I came across some writing of yours in relation to, um, people soloing. I kind of interpreted it as like cult boulder culture. Yeah. I was kind of way to put it. Yeah. Some amount of elitism, some amount of arrogance, some hesitant to use such strong words, but that there is a sort of yeah. culture of bringing people into those environments uh, in ways that maybe they're not prepared for. And then and then accidents happen. Some accidents have happened. Some people have lost their lives. I think what kind of sparked it was like the first thing, which which really wasn't all that. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly related as, as, as a part of that, like very close knit. There's a very close knit kind of boulder soloing, scrambling community. And Bailey Mulholland was uh, a girl in her in mid twenties who was a part of that community and was killed on um, Blitzen Ridge in Rocky. I don't, I don't know, it's like on Ypsilon or some what the name of that peak is, but uh, she was killed. And then in like the three days after that, I believe two separate people fell off of different parts of the first Flatiron, I believe, and then somebody fell while scrambling. I think just like an you know just some rock out in the woods. Nowhere else in the country, I'm, as far as I'm aware, does is there like this density of soloing accidents taking place? And I think, you know, kind of thinking about like why that happens and to what extent that is because of like the culture that really, you know, the elites, you know, the highest performers have kind of set, you know, by doing events like the tour where you have like 15 people scrambling 5-6, soloing 5-6 stacked on top of each other. And if like one of those people falls, it's going to kill everybody. So like you watch that and you're like, oh, it really can't be that dangerous if people are doing that. And I think there's a lot of, you know, you have a college campus there and you have Denver and Boulder and, you know, so many people there who see that stuff and you have enough people, you know, go and absorb it. You know, people I kind of felt like, like, like me who just were kind of ingesting some of that and just kind of getting in this headspace where it's like, oh, you know, this is, this is completely safe. I just need to like conquer my, my fear and just kind of like, you know, quest up the rock and stay on route and it'll be, it'll be totally fine. And I think it's a little bit more. A little bit more complex than that. Yeah. So what's your take on, I mean, here, I'll give you my take on, on that culture. Yeah. I think personally that there's some amount of, there's some amount of elitism. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. Yeah. 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 It exists in that culture. It exists in sport performance. It probably exists in the seals. Mm-hmm. There's, it's necessary to some degree Yeah. because- because it's exclusionary. I mean, not everybody becomes a seal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and not everybody can kind of hang with, you know, that community in Boulder or or whatever. Like on some level, you know, the whole sponsored outdoor industry complex has this going on because not everyone's going to be a sponsored athlete. Like it's yeah, exclusionary yeah. by definition. Yeah, yeah. And with that, in my opinion, comes elitism. That's the that's the sort of um, attitude and set of behaviors that that engenders and and therein lies in my opinion some real toxicity well yeah and it's like something i'm always you know i think social media definitely enhances it because it's like (laughs) i always thought about it on you know like on on especially i think it's on rock like the need for a rope is like very clear you know Whereas on snow, like a lot of times, like you could have a glacier that's, you know, has have had recent snowfall and it's like all the crevasses have been bridged by soft snow. And, uh, and so, you know, I think, you know, to some in my dumb lizard brain or maybe even to someone else, you know, it's like maybe the need for a rope isn't quite, it's not as quite as like visceral and clear. And so that was something, um, I was always concerned about is like, 
what sort of example, like, you know, here I made that post and then obviously I went on Denali. I sold all these glaciers on Denali. The more dangerous one I think was soling the glaciers on Rainier, uh, especially because above when I did that above 12.9, the route was completely unmarked. So like that last, you know, 700 feet of glaciated terrain, you know, I was just, I had never been on Rainier before and I was not like it probably would have helped a ton, but I was just, you know, kind of questing and like, you know, speed probing, you know, like snow bridges, like right before I stepped on them. Uh, you did, you did Rainier just to, for in like three hour, three and a half hours, something. Three hours, four minutes. Three hours and four minutes. Yeah. I mean, just that's incredible crazy i just i just want to keep ref, i just want to keep reflecting on just how insane these uh, records are it takes most people a few days i think yeah um yes i mean a lot of people you, i mean it's again it's the same style it's but you're up there you're doing it in three hours and two minutes and all of a sudden you get past a certain point and there's no more marks or demarcations from guides and things that kind of indicate you know this is where you go this is not where you go and so you're like <laughs> trying to root find and poke through with a pole or something yeah if you I, can i i just want to stress like i mean at the speed you're moving like they're really they're really i i did not take much time you know to probe um because just at that, that you know the the speed you're trying to move that i think is probably the more one of the more dangerous uh efforts that i've done if i were to guess even though you know because it's of like, the crevasse because of the crevasse danger yeah. yeah yeah snow seems less predictable than rock Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same on, same on Denali, like up high on Denali. Um, uh, I got kind of lucky there that um, I had, I had tried to put in a route and flag it up to Rescue Gully. You know, there are some, there are quite a few kind of bridged snow bridges you have to go through there. Um, and then what ended up happening the next morning was uh, I got up there and I came around the corner to 14 camp and I looked up and there were three people booting rescue. And so I was like very excited because they would, you know, put the Skinner in and everything. But by the time I got to rescue, their booter was almost completely filled in. Like I could still see it, but the steps were almost completely filled in with snow. And they told me that their lead guy fell in a crevasse, unroped. So you just rolled step. the dice. So you, so there's this booter in there. They've already told you that. Uh, no. So this is, so this, this is, is I, after. This is a week after I oh, talked wow. to them. So I finally you, caught so up you to didn't those guys. Know. And they were like, by the way. Yeah, by the way. But why are you motivated to do? I mean, back to, I mean, th there's yeah. risk. Like most people don't want to suffer that much. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I think fundamentally, um, I think honestly, like fundamentally life is like rather meaningless objectively. And so I think it's, it's nice just to like try to find some meaning and like the meaning that I right now resonate with is just kind of like competing against the clock. Like when I think back to my Bob, Graham, which is like, I think my like greatest like athletic achievement. Contextualize the Bob. How, how big, how much vert? I did, I did 12 hours and 23 minutes and it was 63 miles and 25,600 feet climbing or 26,600 feet climbing or something. And, uh, that was like the first time I raced Killian. That was like the, the first time I'd second time. I guess I raced internationally and you set the record stage. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Biggest stage I'd ever done. And I think if I were to go back and do that, it would be really, really hard for me to push that hard again because I just, I don't have like the need to like validate myself maybe that I did, that I did then. Do you have any memories of, of, uh, and oftentimes people black these things out. I certainly do, but the harder parts of, um, seal training, yeah. uh, where, where God, it was just so brutal and, and you really needed to, your mind needed to focus on something. And, and you focused on something else. I mean, do you, do you have memories like that? Like, where would your mind go maybe before these were such regular patterns? Oh, in I life? see. I see. I see. I, I don't know. Like, I think a part of it is like, I just really like, you know, the adversity and, you know, I'm sure you can, somebody can armchair that like, you know, as like, you know, coming from like, uh, you know, an upper middle class family, like in, you know, one of the, you know, Connecticut's a wealthy state. I was from Roxbury, a, you know, a pretty wealthy town in Connecticut. Um, you know, I just have like, you know, sought out these experiences because, you know, I like the, the adversity, you know, in kind of a controlled context like that. But, uh, did you feel like an anomaly in the SEALs training program in that sense, in a socioeconomic sense? I mean, my understanding is a lot of these guys are not it's all over the place. Yeah. It's all over the it's place. It's all over the place. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it seems relatively unusual to go through the hardest version of military training from an upper middle class background 
except, I mean, I, to me, it seems like people who might one day want to become a politician maybe do that, but it's oh, like yeah. somewhat unusual. Well, you, you'd be, you'd be surprised. I mean, don't, the SEAL teams, I would bet, skew higher, you know, socioeconomically, the people who come into it than the rest of the military. Than the rest of the military. So that was never a thing for, you didn't have any sort of feeling of social, uh, not fitting in. No, I, <laughs> I felt, I felt that a bit, but it wasn't because of my socioeconomic background. What was it because of? There were some things like, uh, there is, there are many, uh, you know, SEALs are enormously diverse, you know, the people who are there. But that being said, uh, you know, I was always, I was always public with the information that I voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And, uh, oh, so politics. What's that? Politics. It was politics. Became... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that came out at a dinner that we were having uh, at some restaurant. Like one of the other, like there was a pause in the conversation. Like one of the other new guys was like, hey, uh, you know, you know, Jack voted for Hillary. And I was like, well, you know, like I thought this already was already common knowledge. I thought we'd already all discussed this. And it was like, you know, the forks like hit the table. And it was like <laughs> people were like screaming in my face and like walked out of the room. And it was like a lot of, you know, like I was not. I was like definitely not the best seal. Like I don't, you know, certainly I, I think there were there were some aspects of the job I was very good at. Um, there were other aspects of the job I was okay at. I think like part of my problem was for sure is like when I was going through buds, I noticed that the buds, the physical stuff in buds, just didn't affect me as much. And I think I don't know. I I have almost come to the conclusion that that must be that must be genetic. Or that must be something deep in my psychology. I I think part of it may have been a physical thing. That's I why think, I keep trying to get to the like, yeah. yeah. No, no. So, so I noticed in buds that for some reason I was predisposed to do buds like things. And I'd always kind of observed that. But buds, you know, you're put into a very um, elite pool. And I felt like relative to the other people who were there, the training just, just didn't, the, the sleep deprivation, the running, you know, whatever else, for whatever reason, it just didn't affect me as much. You know, and that's, I don't think that's any reflection of training I did or anything. I think that's just naturally. But politically, ideologically, you felt a little bit of a fish out of water. I, I'm curious about this because um, certainly the kind of bolder outdoor industry scene, just even broader, just everywhere, is like very liberal. Yeah. And maybe maybe even beyond a lot of times. Uh, uh, pretty far left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but your experience with a group that, represents the right, let's say, of different parts of that spectrum. Like, do you, do you find those experiences have made you somewhat more ideologically flexible or do you see ideological rigidity? And like, what what do you feel when you encounter ideological rigidity on either side? Well, yeah, so I I, I would say, yes, it's made me much more flexible because like I go and you go from, it was just crazy. You know, there were many, there were, there were conservatives at Yale in the same way there are liberals in the SEAL teams. You know, I think it's, I went from basically, you know, the, the, a 180 there. And like the thing that always struck me is like, I would be exposed to SEALs. And just to say something else, like I thought was, what I thought was very funny was, <laughs> was when we were in second phase going through the dive training, we are like learning, you know, so you have to go submerged with a rebreather. And you have to swim underwater and you have to execute like a course underwater. So like they drop you off outside of a harbor and you have to swim in entirely underwater and like go and like, you know, locate targets and stuff, everything without surfacing. And so you have to have like, you know, very good, I don't know what, spatial awareness. You'd be very intelligent to do this. Um, this was something I was not good at at all. And there were times like I would hand like the underwater compass off to my partner because I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. Like I'm just, you know, I just lack, you know, whatever is required. But I just remember kind of like joking with guys like here I am. I went to Yale. Like you just have a high school education and like I am incapable intellectually of doing this. And like you are so much better at it than me. So in the teams, I really like learned that a lot of the people I went to college with uh, were like very good at school but they may not be have been terribly like bright, you know, like maybe they were bright as reflected in like a college classroom or just standard. In testing. terms of solving like an unconventional problem that one hasn't encountered or considered and doing it quite quickly with novel means. Yeah. And like bright. Is that yeah. what you mean by bright? That's what I mean in that context. Yeah. yeah. And so, so just to say all that, I, there were SEALs that I knew in the SEAL teams that I knew were very intelligent, may not have been very worldly in some contexts, but I knew were very intelligent guys. 
And they were so rabidly like absolute about their political views. And it was the same as the people at Yale. That Very I dogmatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was the same as the people at Yale. Like were they, the, the, both of those group, two groups of people were as convinced that they were right. And it's like, well, both these groups of people are like fairly intelligent. And so it's like, I came to the conclusion where, um, you know, I just, I just, I, I think I have a lot more, I definitely have way more sympathy for people who have like differing political views than I do. I mean, to include like some, like, you know, quite extreme things because I see how like someone can be raised in a different context and like absorb that stuff. And I also kind of, you know, part of being in the teams was, was very discouraging to me because like I made an effort. <laughs> I mean, this just sounds ridiculous. I made an effort with like one seal. I was like good friends with, I was like, I am going to, you know, show him the light and just kind of bring him a little bit more center was my goal. You're, you for were like trying two years. Yeah. I was trying, I was really, really trying. And uh, uh, what I came to the conclusion would be what I need to do is I need to open his mind to like alternative forms of media. And then that's all I need to do. And then once he opens his mind to that and starts engaging with other forms of media, then he will teach himself was like my goal. And I was unable to do it. And so like that made me very concerned for like the future of the U S cause it's like here, like. I made, I thought was a pretty logical effort for like a year, you know, on, on, on one person. And I wasn't able to make any headway. And it's like, Jesus Christ, like, but this do you, is really hard. But, but do you think, and now we're on a political conversation, but I think a lot of people feel that way broadly. I think that's a metaphor for how people feel on the left about the right. Yeah. If I could just change, you know, the media that they are regularly seeing, Yeah. you know, if they, they clearly don't have all the facts or they clearly have yeah. you know the wrong facts or if i could just... they have alternative facts yeah. yeah yeah like that kind of school of thought but i think personally that there are plenty of people who are on the right who know all the things that the left is saying uh, and just don't see it that way yeah no i think that's yeah that's 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 totally possible i felt in his narrow case if he because i would tell him like look like Anytime there's a discussion in the platoon, you and I agree. Like we never disagree on anything except for when it comes to politics and we're on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. And like, I'm not saying like you have to, you know, I'm not saying you should share my political beliefs, but I think in many ways, like I probably am still a little bit too far left. You know, if I was exposed to all the same media, they would be, I think I would probably maybe be a little bit further to the right on some like narrow issues. But um, with him, I was like, I mean, I think. You know, you should be a little bit to the left if you were exposed to just a little bit of, you know, some media that just kind of challenges your your personal belief. But like so many times, like I just distinctly remember like guys like arguing with me and getting so frustrated. And I'm like, this is incredible. I was like, you're getting so frustrated. And it's like, you know, what I think you're saying is nonsense. You know, it's just kind of crazy. Well, they might they might have felt the same. Oh, I'm sure. Like, I'm sure they felt the exact same way. Like what you're saying about this guy who you know, if you just, you, you made it your mission to yeah. like, there were probably some of those guys who felt the same way about you. Like it's their mission to 100%, kind of, yeah. you know, just change the way that you see. 100%. And, yeah. and they're, you know, I think the notion of changing somebody is, is in part a false premise. Uh, it just is like you know, a yeah. life lesson, but, um, okay. I want to actually, we'll zoom out of politics. That's, <laughs> if we could talk <laughs> for three hours, you know, literally we could just always talk about politics and it'd be something to talk about. But, um, you don't accept sponsorship or you don't seek sponsorship mm -hmm. and it seems to be an ethical or ideological stance. Um, I want to ask some questions about that. Yeah, I'm really yeah. curious, like why that is, what your thoughts are around it, where that's coming from. Uh, yeah. So part of it, I think is something that I, well, it's, it's, it's a bit complex. So like when I first got into running, I felt like the trail running space, a lot of the, a lot of what the sponsors were asking from athletes was a little bit ridiculous. And I don't, I don't know, like at least what I was seeing on media. So I kind of felt like the, I was following people on Instagram almost to like support them because I wanted to support them, you know, and everything. And they were exploiting my attention span to monetarily enrich themselves and they were enriching themselves based on me buying the products overpriced and then the money was kind of going to them. So it's like, I didn't love to take part in that kind of scheme. That was kind of the primary thing. And then, yeah, it's just some like some random ones. Like as I get more involved, like 
for a while, I didn't even accept anything free from any brand because I was concerned. Like another thing that kind of bothered me is like a lot of sponsored athletes were saying things they didn't believe in. You know, they were switching from different, you know, shoe brands and, you know, they were taking like different supplements and ointments and, you know, advertising, knowing they fully don't do anything. You know, they're wearing shoes and having to modify them because the shoes are, you know, you can't wear them. So also moral, ethical compromises, but also performance compromises. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, um, I'd be lying. I think some of it is definitely like some deep, like contrarian, you know, part of me. Uh, and I, I think part of it's got to be like what we were talking about before, like the coolness thing, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I think it took me a long time to realize, but it's like anytime you're making money, like you have to be you got to like kind of be somebody's bitch, you mm -hmm. know, it's like really hard to like make money in an ethical way where it's like, you know, you are like standing up for all your values and you're not compromising and like you're making the money just for you and you're doing it. You'd be doing it. You know, it's just like you got to like there's got to be some degree of compromise on the ethics thing. I mean, you're a vegetarian. Yeah. And I've heard you say it. You think it positively impacts your performance. Um, and, and there's plenty of examples of that. I mean, to, to my mind. Like Alex Arnold comes to mind, Killing Journey comes to mind, Tom Brady comes to mind. I mean, oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah, Jim yeah. Walmsley. Yeah. Um, did you used to eat meat? Did you? When did you stop? What made you change your mind? What are your thoughts around all of it? Yeah. So when I so when I was in college, uh, eventually I did go through puberty, and uh, I put on. <laughs> <laughs> I went to like I was like I was like lifting a ton, uh, and I went to the seal officer selection in may of 16 yeah and uh at that point i weighed like 175 and they told me like you gotta put on mass and so between like may and december i went from like 175 to like 217 and like all of that was like 175 to 217 yeah there was like i was convinced it was all muscle it was like a lot of fat but no i put on like a ton of weight and so in that time period like i was eating so much meat like I am still like working off. I've still eat. I have. I've consumed Here's, more meat in my lifetime than I have. Ninety nine percent of people in the United States will consume. I've consumed more meat like in those couple of years than you know most people in their entire life. So, I did used to eat meat a ton, and uh, I was very concerned about how it would affect my performance. You know, stopping eating meat. Like growing up in Connecticut, like we had like chickens and stuff, and like personally, I could never imagine slaughtering one of those chickens to like eat. I mean, it just seems. It just seems kind of crazy to me now to like kill an animal just to like, it doesn't sustain you that long. You kill, you eat a roast. I could eat a fucking rotisserie chicken in one sitting, you know? Uh, and that's like the entire animal's life. But anyways, uh, it just, it took me a while to be comfortable and be confident that it wasn't going to affect my performance. And I think, I think so. I think, I think two things. I think number one, it probably doesn't work for everybody. Uh, and I think the other thing is, is it wouldn't have worked for me at all stages of my life. Like, I think if I was vegetarian in college, when I was trying to, when I was lifting super heavy and when I first started running a ton, when there's probably, I think there's probably way more like muscular breakdown that takes place when you first start running, you first start upping the volume. But it's like now having done like years training at like a thousand hours per year, uh, or more like the level of like muscular distress that probably happens day to day is probably like fairly low relative to what was happening down there. And so like the, the need for protein, I think is probably just, is just lower. I read or saw somewhere else, you're, correct me if I'm wrong, 40 or 50 pounds heavier than say Killian or- Yeah, at least probably. Yeah, I, I think probably Killian probably weighs about 130 pounds. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah, or Carl or some of these other folks who are kind of in the Tyler Andrews who are in the scene of records on tall peaks. Yeah. Um, you have 50 pounds on them. So yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. I mean, in terms of frame, I mean, that's that's 50% more by their by their weight number or 45% more. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, frame is really, for, to be the best at something, you know, or even just to be in the league, you know, like I could never be in the NFL. Mm. I could never be in the NBA. I don't yeah. have the frame for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like frame is pretty essential. Yeah. Um, to be to be in an elite level and then to be the best like yeah. frame is super and yet you're doing what you're doing it seems with a completely different frame i mean i would say a couple things to that like so number one like honestly like the things i've done 
I think many of them are like not, I mean, yes, I think, I think I'm quite fast, but I think they're not contested enough where we can really draw too many objective kind of conclusions from it. I'm certainly much thicker, but like, you know, Jim Walmsley and Francois Dane are both taller than I am and both have like now one uh, UTMB. And then you have like Christian Blumenfeld um, and he, I think he's shorter, but he is like stockier than I am. And he's like, you know, the probably, you know, he's probably considered the best triathlete in the world right now, possibly, you know, of all time. Uh, and granted, like Christian is racing on the flats and power to rate power to weight ratio probably isn't as important for racing on the flats. It is, it is interesting. It's something that goes in my head, you know, a lot, uh, when I'm, when I'm out there, you know, racing. And it's like, we, we talked about, uh, whether I was going to do the grand again. And so with the grand, I think, I think the time that I put up, like at first I was like, oh, like I got beat by Andy by nine minutes and I got beat by Killian. Of course, Killian. What was your time on the grand? 302 for that. <laughs> I just can't. I mean, I've climbed the grand 40 times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like relatively fit. Like just doing it in three hours is so, it's so crazy. I just can't. But um, I think, well, all that is to say, like, I think Andy's time on the grand, I think there is a chance. I mean, who knows? Like somebody might else go and break it or something. But like, I think there's a chance like that record could be an outlier, kind of like Matt Carpenter's like Pike's peak marathon time. Like, I think it might actually be beyond just fast like by might be like exceptionally fast or that might be a record that might stand for a really long time um so at, uh, that is just to say like at first like i was really kind of like you know kind of negative and like oh andy beat me by nine minutes like you know i'm just like not that fast at this distance and you know i talked to scott scott about it and scott's like yeah you know because you are so large like this shorter stuff you know especially the short really short steep stuff like power to weight might be so important that your ceiling is just lower than on the longer stuff right. where power to weight ratio isn't as important. So what is your yeah. training regime? Like, do you do weights still mm. at any point? Do you just run? Do you mostly just get volume in? Do you mix it up and yeah. do faster, short days, longer enduro? Like how, how do you think about yeah. optimal training for what you're doing? Yeah. So, so if we look at the, so, I mean, each season is a little bit different based on what I'm looking at. So, if, so just looking at the 2023 season, so call that like November of 2022 to, you know, two weeks ago when I raced the Prezi. Uh, so November, uh, I knew I was going to be doing more technical stuff in 2023. And so I wasn't comfortable at all soloing fifth class. And so that November I went to Boulder and I was just doing volume. I was doing like, you know, I was doing more. I was like doing like, honestly, 25, 30 hours a week because, it, because it's scrambling. And because it's like kind of like slow, like the downhills were like quick and everything, but like the time on feet was like a little bit longer than it would be normally. Um, I mean, I was probably getting like 35,000 foot, 35 to 35 to high thirties out of outdoor of gain, you know, scrambling in the flat irons and no speed work. And then in December, I went down to park city, um, and I started, you know, kind of like doing speed work and I was doing about 24 hours a week of volume and I was doing one longer, you know, high intensity session wearing a very heavy pack. So I was wearing like, I would get on the Stairmaster wearing like a, you know, pack between like 60 and 90 pounds. And I would do an hour hard, basically, you know, on the Stairmaster. Uh, and I would do that down in Salt Lake City at 4,000 feet. Um, and so then uh, January, I went to Mammoth and uh, I, I switched it up. A, Mammoth, I was doing similar volume, like 24 hours a week of volume. Uh, pro, so that was probably about, you know, probably high thirties, maybe even over 40 elevation gain. I, I, at least I, I don't even, I have no idea, honestly. And then I was probably just doing one speed session a week for January, uh, going down into, I would go down and do it down in Bishop in March. Uh, I started, I added two speed sessions a week, both down in Bishop, kind of keeping the same amount of overall volume, largely on skis. And I'd go down to Bishop and I'd do it either on a 30% incline treadmill or a Stairmaster. Uh, and then same for March. And then, well, actually March, I started, I kept one session down in Bishop, you know, kind of in the thicker air. And then I added one session on skis in Mammoth, you know, somewhere between seven and 11,000 feet doing speed work on the skis. So it was, you know, two speed sessions a week. And then that held for, uh, and I was sleeping at about 8,500 feet. And so that held for 
Uh, I did Shasta round trip record in April. I did Rainier on May 3rd. I did Denali on June 5th. And that was, you know, all, you know, same kind of like two speed sessions per week. Uh, before Denali, I was doing both of them at altitude. Uh, and then uh, as far as then the summer, uh, I started doing two speed sessions per week, uh, both on the treadmill in Boulder. And once I came back from Denali and then I would do one like super high intensity, like really short hill spr sprint session outdoors per week. And the overall volume fell a little bit because I was doing three high intensity sessions. So it was like 20 hours per week and, you know, probably, yeah, yeah. 20 hours per week. You but know, do you I, typically but, do weights or no, like I never do. you never do weights? No, I only do weights. I did weights a little bit in 2022. Uh, stretching? Do you do yoga or any? Not really. No, so uh, the only stretching I'll do very, very occasionally, I'll do stretching for hip mobility. And it was just like rehab work because like my VMO muscle, you know, the, the, the teardrop muscle on the right side of my quad is like, that's like the first mile that mile, first muscle that fires, like when you're, you know, running downhill, when you're striking, that's like the first that kind of like starts to arrest that load. And uh, if like your VMO is weak, like that can cause some knee issues. And so I had some knee pain resulting from that. So I had to do strengthening work. So some PT or preventative, but you're, it sounds like two sort of performance speed days a week and otherwise distance. Yeah, pretty much. Every day? Um, Do you take I'll take, rest days? I'll take off days if, if I, if I need one. Yeah. How frequently? You know, once I'm a week, about this. once every few weeks, I would say, I would say probably once every two weeks, once every two weeks, two or three weeks. Yeah. Is it possible to overtrain? Uh, yeah, I mean, Yes. Yes. You know, for sure. For sure. Yes. I mean, to some extent, like I think typically what happens is people aren't recovering. I think very rarely is it too much easy volume. It's usually too much high intensity work or too much racing. Yeah. Do you think it's possible to overdo endurance sports just generally? Like, <laughs> can it negatively impact people's lives, relationships? Oh, yeah. yeah, other, yeah for sure. For sure. Like, how does that happen? What does that look like? It's just, it's just so hard because like you have to be training. I think it's helpful, you know, train at such a high volume and, you know, it just takes up a lot of time, you know, especially like ski season is really, I find it's quite hard. It's just a big time. It's just a big, big time, time commitment. What I notice is, um, like when I'm doing like really heavy training, like a lot of times, like I can't work, you know, like if I go out and do like a really long ski day and I get back, like the last thing I want to do is like work just because I'm like so fatigued, you know, it can be, uh, it can be really hard. Like sometimes I do a speed session and like, it'll be a hard speed session and like the rest of the day, like I'll be doing nothing. I'll just be cooked all day. You know, what are you going to do next? What's next? Yeah. So, so it's funny. Like I was going to make 2024, like all about doing UTMB and I still may do that. But what I've just kind of found out is, uh, I would have had to qualify I mean, I still hypothetically could, but like, I, I, I just have no interest in forcing some race, you know, this year. So I'm going to contact, uh, UTMB and like, hopefully maybe they would grant me like a one-time exception to do a race and qualify for the race next year. They, you know, have made, they did make exceptions to some elites this year that were far beyond that. Uh, so I think that's a, certainly a possibility, uh, but if that, if that, I don't know, like I'm getting, getting increasingly kind of frustrated with that organization, um, and, uh, how opaque I feel like a lot of the rules are, um, how they kind of treat the elites of the race, you know, just like the entire kind of like, I feel like the race is very corporate and focused on making money. So, uh, I don't know if I want to buy into it and kind of endorse that system, you know, as much as, you know, that is kind of the highest level of competition in many ways, but, uh, you what know, if you just run it after. Yeah, no, that that certainly is a thought, and um, and beat the time. <laughs> I mean, that would that certainly would, be hard. That would yeah. be a statement. That would be a statement. About what about it. other high altitude peaks? I don't think so. Yeah, I think I'm retired. Yeah, Denali was it. Denali was like so brutal, and like the other thing is, is like I am, I am like very into like the physical performance side and like the racing side and everything. I'm really into that, and like with Denali, like so many factors are outside of your control. Like it's so many things you can't control you know, that well, like your performance at altitude, you know, a lot of that is genetic. Uh, and then, I mean, everything to an extent is genetic, but, and then on top of that, you have factors like, you know, Killian, it, like the weather and conditions. Like I know if I went back to race Denali, like I could do it 
you know, with better fitness and I could do it five times and I could like not, I could miss my time every single time just because like, you know, you're, it's so much vertical you're trying to optimize for conditions on and it's just, it's impossible. Like I got lucky in so many ways. Like one of the big ways I got lucky, I think is like, I think that lower glacier can get really, really soft. You definitely got lucky in that respect. Yeah. I, you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I've been there when it's mush. It takes is forever. Is that a thing? Is oh, that a it's thing? absolutely a yeah, thing. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that, like, how the hell do you control for the clouds on the lower glacier? It's, it's very slow if it's um, hot and wet. Dude, like, yeah, like I, I, I double pulled like high speed, like very, very fast double pulled all the way to the base of Misery Hill. Wow. Like I was like, I was going like, I almost had to break it sometimes. I almost felt like I was like, I was like tucked like in the track, like yeah. like some of it. Like, wow. I mean, that could be like, you could be. You're skinning out. I skinned out that hole. Oh, really? Yeah. Like it's that bad. You're yeah. not, you're no longer gaining speed and skiing. You're, you're skinning. Which, well, yeah. you know, it's funny. Cause like, I was just remembering with Rainier how bad it was at the bottom. Like it was mm -hmm. the last, you know, it's regardless of like if ever anybody who ever goes for the Rainier FKT, the last mile is, is hellish. Like mm -hmm. it is just, it is just mashed potatoes. Like for every mm -hmm. single person who's ever done it, like it is a battle just finishing that thing. And like, I was just extrapolating, like not only like, it's not only is it a battle maybe to get to the airstrip on the Mali, but also you could fall through, you know, when it's so much softer in the yeah. afternoon, like it's so much more dangerous. So it's like, I was so stoked yeah. when I got to the bottom, it was cloudy. Yeah. The crevasse like, is widened and yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but probably, probably not. I mean, like there is some like speed history on like some of the peaks, like in central Asia. Like, I think mm -hmm. I'd like to go back there. So, but I don't know, like, you know, it was just so hard on, on Denali. Like, I don't know if I could do that again. <laughs> well, I'll be curious if, if that ever, if you end up getting the itch to go back to do altitude FKTs, I'll be. I'll be watching from a distance. I'll see. <laughs> well, it is funny because like my buddy uh, in Boulder, like he's going, he wants to go do Denali next year. And uh, yesterday I had an opportunity to like sell him all of the gear I used. And at the last second I was like, uh, you know, I'm going to hold on to this. <laughs> you know? Ah, so you're, so there's a, there's hope. Yeah. Or there's a, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> a maybe. Uh, yeah. Um. Jack, this has been a great conversation. Dude, man. yeah, it's a lot of fun. I've been a fan. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna keep being a fan. I'm just gonna be watching the internet as you, as you set more records and, um, just blaze your way in into this whole space. I, I think it's awesome. Oh, sweet, thanks, dude. I really um, appreciate that. And let's get out for a run. Sometime yeah, soon. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thanks.